Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and welcome to the Fly Pass podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Howard Healy, Secretary and Museum Trustee for the Newark Air Museum. Good morning, Howard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And you? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, thanks for joining us. You recently got in touch to tell us about the uh, some of the activities uh, you've been getting up to at the museum, some of the work you've done on the projects. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about the museum itself, You know where it is and when did it open? Okay, the museum um, officially opened to the public on the 14th of April 1973, one of now the largest volunteer managed aviation collections in Great Britain. And uh, we like to think that uh, over all those years, uh, we sort of the history actually goes back to the early 1960s when some of the founding members who were involved with the Royal Observer Corps and also the local ATC decided they wanted to get together to try and initially own a Spitfire, something that's never really come to fruition, but it's one of the founding aims back in the early 1960s. The museum formally became a charity and a limited company in 1968. And uh, we say officially opened to the public a few years later in 1973. And uh, a little bit uh, scary in some respects to look back, but uh, I was actually a schoolboy in Newark in the 1970s. And I actually joined the museum about six weeks before it opened to the public officially. And uh, was there on, on the 14th of April and on and off been pretty much involved ever since. And uh, quite sobering to think that that's approaching 50 years, uh, a big big chunk of my life and uh, something that uh, has developed and uh, become very proud of. It's an amazing thing to dedicate your life to, you know, in terms of historical value, it, it's off the scale, really. Uh, I suppose it is, but the, the museum's about a lot of people, been involved in a huge number of projects. Officially, for me, it's, it's still a hobby. You know, it's uh, evolved and uh, become quite a passion of mine. And, uh, you know, say something that I'm very proud of. And, uh, you know, a great team of people, both employees and volunteers that are sort of involved in the museum on a day to day basis. And, uh, you know, it's uh, quite uh, thought provoking and uh, there have been a few challenges over the years, but uh, something that uh, I say very proud of. Where did your interest first come from you know, as a young boy? My interest came from my late father, Eric. He was evacuated from Sheffield on 1st of September 1939. He ended up um, with a family in a place called Balderton, which is just outside of Newark. Balderton had a, a, an RF airfield. And I grew up with a lot of Eric's stories of, as a young boy uh, watching the aircraft on RF Balderton, um, included the time talking to American airmen um, and, and paratroopers from the uh, units that were based there uh, in the run-up to D-Day and Arnhem. And I guess really Dad's interest and the stories that he told me sort of uh, piqued my interest. Um, Nottinghamshire in the 1960s and early 1970s was surrounded by aviation, a big part of aviation history as well in the county. And... Uh, something that I grew up with and seeing the aeroplanes around. And if I'm very honest, my, my early involvement with the museum, it actually gave me an opportunity to actually get inside an aeroplane, something that I'd seen or things that I'd seen flying around the skies. The museum represented an opportunity there to go 
look inside them, see what it was like from the inside. That time had never, never flown, never been on holiday. It was 1975, the first family holiday we went on involving flying. So it was a good way of getting involved and uh, hooked pretty much ever since. What was that first aircraft? Uh, I think the first aircraft I went in at the museum was, was the Anson. We'd uh, had various Ansons in the museum's history. Um, one of them sadly was lost to, to, to fire in 1971 and was involved in rebuilding a second example getting it ready for the official opening day. So you're going in there and to be honest, it was quite spartan at the time. It wasn't the good condition that it is now after its subsequent in-depth restoration, but, uh, you know, a good good founding board and same on, on and off involved in many ways ever since. So that's the same answer you've got now? It is, yeah. That's the, the T-19 stroke 21, which is a, a bit of a composite airframe, but... Uh, that was rebuilt in the 1980s and early 1990s, and uh, saying get it back to something like its former glory. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of a soft spot, but uh, obviously other aircraft in the collection have uh, left a big, bigger impression on me in some respects. You know, being involved in in their acquisition in, in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, yeah, good, good early foundation. So. The museum itself—that's based on old ex RF Winthorpe, I think you say on your website. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we're still located on plot of what was RF Winthorpe, established as a wartime training base, putting crews into five group with sort of RAF and Bomber Command. And I guess one of the important things for me is that that's given me an opportunity to help do the research and establish contact with you know, people that came to Winthorpe. It was a heavy conversion unit, primarily 1661 heavy conversion unit itself was an innovative approach to training during World War II. And uh, I, I look back now, and uh, one of the, the, the two people that officially opened the museum, we had Rafe Cochran, who was OC5 Group at the time of the Dams Raid, and then David Bonham Carter, who was our founding president. And Bonham Carter was involved um, in establishing the Empire Training Programme out in Canada uh, with, through Churchill. And... You know, I look back now and, and I've come to realise that, it's yes, the aircraft are important and a, a significant part of it, but it's the people aspect that's really important. People that designed them, built them, flew them, are now looking after them and volunteers and their stories and recollections are, are the really important thing. And I often think, you know, I remember standing there looking at, to me at the time, two old gentlemen cutting a ribbon on an airfield. And if I'd known, then, about them, what I know now, boy, would I have asked a whole load of different questions of them and, you know, their experiences and, and whatever. And, you know, time gives you a, a, a different perspective on, on things and uh, it'd be nice to be able to go back and, and ask a few different questions. Yeah, well, that generation, there's a lot of them didn't make a big deal about what they did either. So you could have asked somebody a question and they would have just brushed over because it was just a part of their life, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and that's one of the one of the privileges, really, of, of being involved in the museum. You get to meet lots of people over the years. We've, we've met many former veterans who learnt their skills at RF Winthorpe before going on to operational squadrons. Some of them came back um, to act as instructors with the conversion unit. Some of them stayed in Nottinghamshire, and to be able to to meet and, and sit and chat, and I mean. I've, Done a couple of interviews that have featured in in Flypast, you know, and, and also Aeroplane. 
meeting those veterans that came through Winthorpe and you know being able to tell their story is, is quite a, a precious part of what we're involved with. I had an experience two weekends ago where the, a gentleman came to the museum. Um, he'd been somewhere else in another location and saw the signs and called it at the museum. And he'd actually got his, his father's logbook in the car when we got talking. And through talking to him, established that his father had been a pathfinder, had done two full tours. And I asked the question, I said, well, you know, where did he train? He said, well, I don't really know. He said, but uh, I said, well, you know, if you've got access to his logbook, you know, you'll be able to, to find that out. So I've got that in the car. He went and found it and brought it back to me. Quick flip through the logbook. We actually found that he'd actually trained at 1661 conversion units at Winthorpe. He'd not known that that's where his father had learned his skills. And during the course of the conversation, he ended up in tears. His daughter ended up in tears. I had a few tears because he'd come somewhere that was you know, a principal part of his, his father's life. And then right at the end of the conversation, said, I said, you know, not looked at the big in, in his logbook. He was awarded the DFC. And I said, right, okay, well, that, that's interesting. And I said, oh, yes. So I said, well, you make sure you look after that. And, you know, to be able to fill in another little bit of that family's history, um, again, is a precious part of what we do. And uh, sometimes it's under, undervalued and underplayed. And, uh, you know, again, proud to be part of those sort of being able to establish connections, as it were. And, uh, you know, history is a very precious thing and, uh, you know, nice to be part of it. And easily lost as well. I mean, you're saying if he hadn't had his logbook with him on that day, he probably would run away and never known. Yeah, never, never realised. And but you know, you sort of you, you have that conversation, and then you start talking. So, well, you know, where we're actually stood, this concrete was laid down as a bomber dispersal during World War Two. We can't say for certain, but your father may have walked on here. We don't know, but he was certainly on the airfield for about six weeks of part of his training, learnt his skills, and you know, then went on and, and had you know 50, 50 operational missions really really valuable part of our aviation history and uh, say nice to be part of it and that that's why it's somewhere like the new Museum is so important because it does preserve that sort of stuff for the next generation it does and i mean we're we're quite proud of our if you like trainees links um over the years we've, we've developed and collected a large number of training aircraft winthorpe say was a training base Training often gets under, under, underplayed because without training, you don't have the bomber pilots, the fighter pilots, whatever skills you're going on to, to learn. You have to train for those roles. And uh, we, you know, we were very proud to you know, display that aspect of the collection. Winthorpe, Newark in general, is surrounded by former training bases, still training bases, RF Cranwell, RF Swindon, highest and Newton. You know, lots of training took part in that part of the country. And, uh, you know, through the collection, we've, we've been able to, you know, develop that side of the aviation story. And, uh, you know, it's, it, again, it's something we're very proud of. And uh, we'll, we'll make continue that we develop and enhance that. Like you say, I mean, training command is not the most glamorous command, but when you think about how many people were killed in accidents training, it's quite a sobering statistic, isn't it? Well, it is, and, and that's that's one of the most sobering aspects. I mean, we, we know from the all details that we've got from Winthorpe's history and the conversion unit history that in many instances during World War II, 
operational squadrons were grounded because of weather. But certainly part of the heavy conversion unit course was flying in bad weather. So operational units are grounded because it's unsafe to fly, but training is still continuing. So you learn how to deal with those aspects of you know a flight you know if you're having to fly in adverse weather conditions we established the RF Winthorpe Memorial around about 2000 and that is dedicated to a crew um, of a sterling that was lost from Winthorpe in January 1945 they were flying in bad weather Every operational units were grounded and there were nine airmen lost in that particular crash, seven trainees and two instructors. One of the instructors was an Australian gentleman. He'd obviously done his tour, and then he was, he was back at Winthorpe. And, you know, we're proud to, to commemorate that particular crew, but using them as an example to commemorate all the people that trained at RF Winthorpe. And they came from all over the world, you know, literally all parts of the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, Rhodesia, Canada. Some Americans came through, South Africans, a massive influx of people every six or seven weeks coming to Winthrop to learn their skills and say it's an important part of what we're about. So you must get a, a wide range of people coming back to the museum as well, who may have been there at some point or their families. Yeah, we, we, we do. I mean, that, that's not as frequent as it used to be. Um, obviously, a lot of that generation has sadly passed away. But, you know, there's still the contact with the family members. People coming, say, from literally all over the world. And, you know, on a personal basis, I've researched projects linking up families from, say, from Australia, New Zealand, you know, all over the world. And it is a genuine privilege to be able to help people fill in some gaps and, and say, reconsider, but to, to understand part of their own family history. And uh, as I say, an important part of what the museum's about. It's not just the airplanes. and. Uh, you know, it can be quite therapeutic for, for everybody, from both the families and, and also for us. You know, you, you feel you're achieving something important and helping to fill in some of those gaps for people. When did the base close from the RAF? When did they, when did they pull out? The final closure from the from RAF point of view happened in the late 1950s, just, just before I was born. The operational side, the flying side, ceased September 1945. There's a little bit of talk in, in run-up to one or two, partly for the Berlin airlift, that some of the, the airfield may have been used to store some of the transport aircraft. Never really be able to formalise that, but established the CSDU, the Central Servicing Unit, that was at Winthorpe for many years, that was involved in preparing all the documentation, you know, all the APs and things. You know, that was part of Winthorpe's latter operational service. Eventually, much of the airfield site was purchased by the uh, local agricultural society, and that's an organisation that we still lease part of our site from. We, we also own, I think we lease just over four acres, but we own 12 acres, all part of XRF Winthorpe. And, uh, you know, we've, we've established quite a, a strong collection there and uh, say something that we're all very proud of and looking to see develop and move forward. I mean, would I be right in saying the museum has quite a focus on the post-war aviation and the Cold War jets? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I also grew up with stories from my late grandfather on my mother's side of aircraft being scrapped. You know, there are locations around Newark where gravel workings that 
were created by you know, extraction of aggregates to, to make the runways and things of the airfield. And they were used to dump aircraft. You know, um, there's a place out near Bestor um, on the Gainsborough Road. And, and my grandfather told stories of seeing literally just lorry after lorry going to this particular gravel extraction workings and the aircraft being tipped. So a lot of the wartime aircraft were lost. I mean, we, we've obviously got our Lancaster Fuser life section, which is quite a rarity, 106 Lancaster, nine squadron aircraft still going strong, same markings, wartime markings still carried on the aircraft. The BBMF Lancaster flew in a number of years ago, um, but those aircraft weren't available. So the obvious migration to the collection was the aircraft that were available. In the early phase of the museum's development, obviously, we, we, we pretty much collected most things. But as we became an accredited museum, and we sort of started to follow national guidelines and adopted a collecting policy, we started to refine our pol- collecting policy. So it reflected in part the aircraft that we had in the collection, but you know, focused a little bit more on onto, you know, the training aspects. A little bit to do with Winthorpe and its history and the local airfields, but yeah, primarily post-war jets, which in effect was the airframes that were available. And uh, you know, we've evolved a little bit from there. There's one or two things that are not in that category, but uh, you know, say very uh, very proud of all the different bits and pieces that we were able to collect and gather and save over the years. I think on your website, you list them as 13 national benchmark aircraft and 34 significant aircraft, 24 noteworthy. So how does that break down? What's the... I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but there was a, there was a phase in the late 1990s that there was a, a survey done effectively of all the aircraft in museums across the UK. And that established the provenance of the aircraft based on a whole range of factors, quite a complicated solution to understand what was in preservation and try and put some, some say, value on them, but, you know, the significance of them to the national collection. And we actually used the National Aviation Heritage Register as part of our justification process when uh, we did the application to the Heritage Lottery Fund for Hangar 2. That was something that I was heavily involved in and did a lot of the research and the writing. And one of the things we used the register for was we looked at our stock of aircraft and then we decided which airplanes we would look to put inside the hangar. And to illustrate that, there were obviously Vulcans and Shackletons and some of the other larger aircraft, Hastings, already undercover on display in, in collections around the UK. But at the time, we, we established that there was no varsity displayed under cover. And as a type, the varsity was a significant training aircraft to the collection. It had flown both at RAF Finningley and RAF Swindeby. And we decided that our building would be focused around putting the varsity inside. And the varsity was instrumental in part of the design of the building. There's a special feature on the building just to accommodate the varsity tail. Um, so that was how we used it. And what we found was quite fascinating is that eventually we completed Hangar 2 in 2004. The varsity was moved in in September. And within two months of that move of that particular aircraft going inside, 
both Duxford and Cosford had moved their Vastas undercover. So, you know, I, whether they'd looked at us and thought, well, you know, perhaps that's a good idea and we ought to do this. I don't know. I'm not, not, not privy to that. But, you know, that register and the, the status of the aircraft on that register was influential in us deciding which aircraft were going to go in there. One of the things that I've sort of identified, if you like, over the years is that we, we, we like a challenge at Newark. There's often a challenge that's there to be um, solved. And one of the challenges we had with Heritage Lottery Fund, uh, challenge is probably not the right word, but at the time, a lot of iconic buildings were being built, the, the Cold War Museum, the American Aircraft Museum at Duxford. And they were part of the process was to build a building that was also you know, something of significance. And for us, that was going to be a challenge because we, we didn't have the financial resources to do an iconic building. We, we just needed a building to put airplanes in. And we had to work very hard and, and we quickly got Heritage Lottery Fund on side with us and persuaded them that this is what we can afford. Its function is to protect the aircraft, get them undercover. And we developed a project when everybody was doing big fancy buildings with quite a simple and straightforward building. But through that process, we established that they recognised it was an exemplar project. It featured on the Heritage Lottery Fund website for many years. We delivered the project on time, under budget, and, you know, again, another proud aspect of, of what we're involved with. And everybody said, oh, you're going to have to have a fancy building. We, we knew we couldn't afford that, and we were able to persuade the people that made the decisions that, you know, it suited us. And uh, again, as I say, a big challenge, but one we overcame and probably one of the top two or three things that I've been involved in the museum over the years. And you know, I, I still get a, a bit of a buzz every time I go in there to think that, yeah, okay, we'll look around and see all the aeroplanes in there. And yeah, I was, I was, I was part of making this happen. And uh, again, I keep saying it, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a proud part of the museum's history you know, and, and the, something that I was heavily involved in doing. And it will be here long after both of us, hopefully, you know. Hopefully, yeah. Future generations. No, no, that's that's one of the challenges is getting the younger generations involved. But, uh, you know, post-COVID, we've we've had a significant uptick in the number of um, school visits that are coming to the museum, scouts as well, and uh, sort of getting a young young engagement there. It's, it's, It's quite... Quite a challenge, but uh, we, we get the way our factor. We, we, we're using Hangar 2 quite a lot at the moment as an education space. We've got an area set up where we, the children can come in and use as a base before they go off to look around the museum. And virtually every time you take a group in there, there's a big wow as they walk in. And you know what better place to sit and do some, some lessons than in the middle of an aircraft display hangar and you know, surrounded by lots of different aircraft of different shapes and sizes, which you can use to illustrate the principles of flight, how aeroplane shapes and structures change to do different functions. And, uh, you know, quite an inspiring location. And uh, it's, uh, let's say we've got another session again tomorrow. Um, let's say long may they continue it generates interest and hopefully if the, the, the children are inspired to go away and tell mum and dad grand and grandparents get more visitors coming through and uh, supporting the valuable work that the museum does 
I remember being a kid, and to me, a jet was a jet. It, uh, you didn't think that was from the 50s or the 60s. It's just a jet. And you know, as a, as a young child, that's an exciting thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've had quite a number of uh, the schools since the beginning of September have, have been sort of sort of underprivileged areas, sort of part of a, a wider programme running Nottingham. And a lot of the children, I mean, we've come to the point now where airline travel is it's not quite like riding a bus, but it's much more common than it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, but to get a group of school children in that have never been on an aeroplane, and the only aeroplane that they've seen is the one flying through the sky, to be able to go underneath, walk around, occasionally look in them, is, is quite inspiring. You know, they just do not realise how you know, massive the aircraft are and then when you things like the Vulcan, you say, well, we've got this massive airplane, but you've got such a small cockpit area. They can't believe it. And then you have to explain, okay, you have to go down a, you know, the fact that a lot of it is, is based around warfare. But, you know, it, it's thought-provoking for them. And you, you get some quite profound questions that are asked. And, you know, it's, it's a great leveler to, 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 to get an understanding of the appreciation that a lot of children do actually have. and. Uh, Again, it's it's a nice part of what we get involved with that you know, getting a different human interaction on a topic that you're something you know you're very passionate about, and uh, it's a, a good feeling when you make those connections and have that engagement with people. As you say, if, if you go on holiday on an airline now, there's no feeling of glamour or any sense of danger. It's, it's like getting a bus, isn't it? You, you wait around at the airport, you get on it, and you go. And if you're lucky enough to get to look in the cockpit, well, when I did as a child, you could do that. You could see the cockpit. But then you look at something like the Vulcan, it's a very, very different thing entirely. It does make you think that there's a yes. very different... It does make you think. And I think the, the, the biggest challenge you have is the, the difference between military aircraft and civilian aircraft. You know, do, you sort of using the differences, the lack of soundproofing or you know, covers over things to save weight. You can use that to illustrate the rules, regulations, and you know, basic forces involved with flying, you know, weight, distance, move, flown, and all the aspects. You can use the exhibits to tell that story. And you know, the number, I think, the, the most common comment from the youngsters is, oh, they smell funny. But then you talk to you know, Vulcan air crews, and they will go in, and the first thing they'll do, yep, still smells the same. And, you know, the, the, the senses are there in, in all sorts of different, different aspects. And again, it, it's part of the, the wider story and the wider experience. And that's a little bit sad that in, to some extent, you know, the open cockpit offer is off the table at the moment. We, we're allowing people to look in some of the exhibits, but not to go in because of COVID secure measures. That will come back. But uh, again, it, it's you know, quite a wire factor when people get to, to go in something. And it's like you say with the Vulcan, you go in and say, is this all it is? You know, is this the cockpit? Well, yeah, that's it. You know, crew of five. Well, what about the rest? Well, you know, fuel, munitions, avionics, engines, etc. It's, you know, it's quite thought-provoking for, for, for the, you know, the visitors and some find it very difficult to believe that um, those aeroplanes were flown, things like the Vulcan. They're pretty much flown like a fighter and, uh, you know, very inspiring in many different ways. I mean, talking about the Vulcan, for me, I knew it's quite a special place in my memory because I don't know why, but my family called in there on, on the way 
back from somewhere. I must have been about 15 and the Vulcan was there and I got to go in the cockpit. There was, I don't remember there being any sort of hoo-ha or anything. It was like literally you went in the Vulcan cockpit. And then that for me just really sort of cemented my interest in a- aviation from an early age. Yeah, I mean, the Vulcan was, was, was quite a challenge. It was another one of our challenges that back in 1983, 1982, it started. The Vulcan acquisition... At one time, we were told we were no longer going to be eligible to secure a Vulcan. The Vulcan at that time, or our Vulcan that we display, was the only one to go into a non-licensed airfield. It didn't have any of the facilities that most of the other locations had. And it was down to the skill and commitment from the RAF locally that they wanted one preserved, that we were able to you know, overcome all the uh, rules, regulations and guidelines and make it happen. The aircraft was originally purchased by an individual and was subsequently sold on, and it's now on long-term loan to us from the Lincolnshire's Lancaster Association. You know, it's been there since the 7th of February 1983, another day, date that's etched on my memory. You know, we, we look at what was achieved on that last morning. Everything had been done to you know, put all the arrangements into place. But at 8 o'clock on that Monday morning, it wasn't coming to us, and that situation only changed by about quarter past 11, officially. And then in the next two hours, everything was put in place to put the aircraft down and, and ahead of the snowstorm. And I, 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 sometimes I said quite nightmares, but that was done in the days pre-mobile phones and social media and all things like that. One telephone at the museum and another telephone over on the showground. And in that two-hour period, something like 200 to 300 people got the message and turned out to see that delivery. I shudder to think how many people would be there in this day and age, you know, with, with social media and how fast that cascade of information would go out. But again, lots of people witnessed, you know, a notable day in the museum's history of, of achieving that aircraft delivery. And then, you know, the subsequent work to deactivate the aircraft and then the strange scenario, you know, the RAF spent four and a half days basically taking out a lot of the avionics um, because it was still classified and we weren't supposed to be able to have access to that on the, as part of the delivery terms. And then us going back up to a local scrapyard and starting to buy it back and refit it into the aircraft. You know, it seems a crazy situation, but that's the reality of the time. and. Uh, as I say, a significant part of the museum's history. The heaviest, largest aircraft ever to land at RAF Winthorpe, or um, onto the runways of XRF Winthorpe. And uh, as I say, a very iconic aircraft that attracts a lot of attention. A lot of people said it wouldn't last as long as it has done. A lot of hard work, dedication, and you know, effort goes into keeping it and looking after it on behalf of the Lancaster Association and the uh, it's something that we're, we're, we're very keen to continue and, uh, say, very popular exhibit and, uh, say, something that draws gasps and, you know, of amazement at the, the size of it and the role that it did. So, uh, say, an important part of the collection. And a good draw to the collection because when you think about it, all the Vulcans where they are now, that's where they're going to remain. They're not going to be moved around anywhere logistically, <laughs> are they? So there's only so many places you're going to see a Vulcan. Yeah, it's 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 a major challenge. I mean, XM five nine four literally sits where it engines were switched off on that Monday afternoon. It presents challenges. There's no doubt about it. You know, looking after large aircraft outside, 
is a major undertaking and uh, it's something we don't do lightly. You know, you have to make sure that everything is is safe and secure and, and looked after in a, a, a proper manner. It's an ongoing program of work. It was a conscious decision that that, along with the Shackleton and Hastings, didn't go into Hangar 2. We opted for the varsity. Yes, there's been talk about possible other buildings, but you know the challenges of getting aircraft across to those those buildings was not insurmountable. You know, would be a major, major effort on everybody's part. So, uh, you know, who knows what the future lies there? But um, we say a lot of hard work continues day in, day out from all sorts of different people involved with the museum, and, and I'm just one of those people. Um, put a lot of effort and time into to making sure that we've got something preserved for future generations so that they can hopefully get the same inspiration that the airframes have provided for us. And I believe recent work has included painting the Canberra and uh, I think you've touched on the monospire as well. Yeah, we've done, uh, we have a sort of rolling programme of summertime projects. It's, it's easy to apply paint in warmer weather and, you know, the paint adheres better if you've got the, the, the right temperature conditions and things like that. So. Uh, the Canberra T-19 has, has, has been one of the aircraft that's has received a lot of attention this summer along the T-33. The Monospar um, not, doesn't really fall into our sort of stereotypical category of collection, but uh, it's one of only three Monospars left in the world. It was flown out of Australia in the 1930s, general aircraft construction down at Han- Hansworth in London. and was actually then flown back from Australia in the early 1960s and uh, then went into quite a rapid decline in terms of condition because of its fabric construction. It was rescued in the, the late 1960s and moved to, to Newark and it's been a, a long-term project with the collection getting on for something like 25 years of work and effort have gone into it. The biggest challenges with the monastery is, is the lack of drawings and plans and, and whatever to work to. So it's, it's been a bit of a, almost like a reverse engineering project to get it back up to its current condition. It's pretty much complete now. And um, wanted to mine a little bits and pieces, but you know, the, the final work has been done in the cockpit, reupholstering the seats, refitting the instruments, and putting the aerial runs and things like that. You know, a lot of lot of hard work and dedication by wide range of volunteers at the museum and uh, it's nice to have got towards the end of that project it's attracted a lot of international connections again was flown from australia to england by a guy called dr john morris who was actually going to dublin to train to be a surgeon took six weeks to fly it back from australia sadly he was was lost in a, a flying accident in the late 1970s we do have connections or contacts with the family and the family have been over to see the work underway. And we're looking forward to them being able to come back to see you know, the work that has been done on this, you know, not quite unique because there are a couple of others, but very rare aircraft that we're, again, we're really honoured to be able to have done the work and display at the museum. And uh, I have fond memories of it. We had a lot of assistance from the museum in Denmark and their curator was very helpful, was very obliging in providing photographs of their exhibit to help with our restoration. And I was a little bit 
aghast to find one day that hadn't fully appreciated that their monospar was hung from the ceiling about six metres up in the roof. So every time we sent a question or asked for some further details, they had to get a lift platform out and literally go up into the roof of their museum to provide us with that information. But that was done willingly. And, uh, you know, it's nice that aviation museums around the UK and across the world are able to work together to, to help each other receive projects to fulfilment. And, uh, you know, we're, we're thankful for that support that we've, we've had from Denmark. And uh, hopefully we might, may even be able to get them across to see that to all their effort in providing us that information, see what a good job it's uh, been done to help with our Monospar project. Which just tries to show the, the sort of the wealth of feeling and the sense of camaraderie amongst the flying community, well, the vintage flying community, you know, that somebody would go to that sort of length to actually climb up and look at an aircraft to get you a little bit of detail like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an unusual, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm there and, you know, okay, sometimes challenging situations arise and yeah, there's, there's probably a bit of competitiveness, I guess you would call it, but by and large, you know, people work together. Um, I mean, we, we had a, a spell really before I, I became a museum trustee, but in the mid-1970s, Newark was very influential in, in securing the American aircraft on, that went into connections, things like the Super Sabres, T-33s and the Mystairs. They were part of the military aid programs that the Americans put in. And our chairman at the time was involved with the RAF, US Air Force liaison, and he became aware that the aircraft would be going to be coming through the UK for disposal. And uh, he made, his name's group captain, Tom Stafford, and he made a lot of contacts and established that the museum was going to be able to secure the aircraft and have them gifted to us. And then they had a situation whereby revenue and customs got involved and Basically, the statement was made that if the aircraft were going to be gifted, then there would be a tax due on the aircraft based on their original value, which was, I think at the time, something in the region of 20 to 24,000 pounds. That obviously meant that we were going to be unsustainable as acquisitions. And so, through Tom Stafford's efforts and a little bit of lobbying with a local MP, the process went through both houses of parliament. The aircraft, rather than being gifted, were then actually placed on long-term loan with the museum. And as part of that process, it was deemed that it wouldn't be fair that Newark was the only one, maybe IWM Duxford, to get the aircraft. So they needed to be made available for other aircraft museums to take on loan. So the efforts of, if you like, challenging that decision through Parliament helped Newark but he'd also help other museums to acquire those aircraft, which are still on long-term loan. Certainly from the Newark's point of view, it's an annual return that we have to do to the United States Air Force Museum to give them a condition survey. Occasionally they come out and inspect them. But again, you know, somebody said that something couldn't be done. So the people involved went about challenging that and making sure that it could be done. And, one time I did a, a quick add-up. I think there was at least three or four museums that were established just on their ability to be able to take those aircraft on loan. And, you know, it's, again, it's a nice feeling to think that Newark was, was influential in, in getting that original decision changed and uh, enabling 
lots of people to have access to you know the, those three types of aircraft. So again, pioneering work in often challenging circumstances. In terms of, of um, exhibits, have you got anything new or interesting coming up, or any of your special event days that we should give a little mention to? Um, we just finished our last special event day of the year. Uh, we had a 1940s weekend just gone by. There's one or two you know, projects in the pipeline, but we, we're a little bit circumspect of saying too much because we, we, we know just before lockdown, we were gifted the Eurofighter Typhoon DA4 by the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. And COVID has stopped us being able to proceed with that project at the pace that we want. And the aircraft is partially dismantled in Hangar 4 at Duxford. And we're waiting the, the, the go ahead to you know get that aircraft moved up to to Winthorpe. I think it's a phrase when the wheels are on the ground at the Newark Air Museum. We, we, we prefer not to go into too many details. I often get I, I do a lot of public speaking and you know, talk to you know, different groups about the history of the museum and things. And I think one of the things that people get surprised that we, we probably on average. I would say once every two weeks we get offered a new exhibit, a new airplane, and you know, most cases it's something that it's you know it doesn't fulfil the collecting policy, or it's too far away, it's too big a project to to handle, you know. But there's there's a constant stream of offers, and often you know, bright eyes, I've seen such and such, and if I buy it, can I bring it to you? And you know, it becomes a bit of a challenge that you you know have to turn things down. I mean, we have a bit of a phrase that the ones that got away, and uh, you know, there's, there's quite a, a a number of exhibits on that list of ones that might have been to come into Newark. You know, some that we thought were coming to Newark, and then for various reasons didn't happen. And uh, as I say, until those wheels are being off either landing or offloaded onto the tarmac at Winthorpe or the concrete at Winthorpe, then uh, we, we keep our powder dry. There's one or two things we're working on, but uh, still all to be finalised and come to fruition. If somebody wants to keep tabs on what's happening or when to visit, should we point them towards your Facebook page or your website or what's the best way? The Facebook page, we, we do have a Facebook, but uh, that's a, a small group, a closed group that people do have to apply to join got quite an active twitter feed and we do try and keep the museum website up to date uh, covid has been a major major challenge to us we've obviously had to follow national guidelines and we've had closures but since we've been able to reopen properly this summer it has been a good return of visitors august was one of the best you know august we've had in 20 30 years so you know there are encouraging signs there there are still one or two things like with the cockpit access that are off limits at the moment. Hopefully that will change. But the important aspect of that is playing our part in fighting the pandemic, keeping our volunteers and staff safe, keeping visitors safe. And by and large, most of the public understand that and are very appreciative of being able to get back on to a location that's 16 acres, basically. We've got a lot of space that... uh, People can come and go around. And yes, we've got the, the hangers as well. So on days when it's not very good, you know, if you can run between the hangers, you can get some undercover visit experience. So we, we benefit from that. But uh, yeah, the website and, and Twitter feed, probably the, the most important areas to to follow. And 
and obviously through the magazines we, we get some great support from publications across the world and obviously fly past airplane aviation news etc and you know we, we're appreciative of that support we wish funds would allow us to do a bit more advertising but uh, you know it's it's been quite a significant hit with the loss of visitors for the, the amount of time we've been closed so we're, we're, we're getting through and uh, it's really nice to be back and open to the public I'm looking forward to visiting again in 2022. Uh, I think we'll leave it there for now, but thanks very much for joining us, Howard. Thanks for having me, giving me the opportunity to have a chat and tell a bit of the story about New York Museum. A pleasure. Thank you. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.